following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back, everybody, to the Larger for Life podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Spinneweber, here joined with all of the co-hosts, everyone. This is a stunning day. It's a stellar day in Presbyterian church history when all five podcast hosts can get together. And we've got a lot to talk about today because question 37 is a very meaty, it's a very weighty matter for us to uh, talk about with each other. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? That's question 37 in the larger catechism. The answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and of her substance and born of her, yet without sin. As I'm looking at this question, guys, and we don't have to adhere strictly to this outline, but as I'm looking at this, there's, I think, very significantly in that second clause, the language of a true body and reasonable soul in the third clause. So what does this question mean when it's talking about a true body and a reasonable soul? We have the virginal conception through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is significant not just to uh, Roman Catholics, but I would say more so to us Protestants, and born of her, yet without sin. So it's a sinless conception. Those are three things that stand out to me and in no particular order. Does it does somebody want to take a stab at true body, reasonable soul, virginal conception, or the without sinness of it all? Well, Spin, I I think that you know, J.G. Voss, who we've referenced a number of times throughout uh, our many episodes at this point, you know, helpfully in his commentary helps us to think about, you know, the parts or elements of our human nature, how our human nature is composed. And he he asked that question, what are the parts or elements of which our human nature is composed? And he says, it you know, it's composed of two parts or elements, body and soul. And if we just take that first clause a true body, Voss says, the body is made up of material substance that is of chemical elements such as oxygen, hydrogen, calcium, carbon, etc. Uh, and what Voss is trying to help us understand here and what we want our listeners to understand is when the catechism speaks of this true body, uh, he, you know, the catechism, the divines, they are, they are speaking to a body just like ours. Um, we are both body and soul. Our bodies specifically are a material substance, oxygen, hydrogen, calcium, carbon, etc. Um, and so, you know, we have to make sure that we're not falling into some, you know, some false teaching that uh, took place within the, the early church that somehow uh, the body that Christ uh, assumed was not like ours, that it was simply, you know, 
an illusion or only imaginary. It wasn't real like ours. No, the catechism says true body. And what they mean by that is, is just like ours, flesh and blood. Um, Spin, I'm going to kick it right back to you because before we were uh, live here on our uh, on our podcast, we were talking about some creeds and confessions that are very helpful uh, in this discussion uh, for us. And so you want to mention some of those or even specifically uh, talk through some of those parts? Yeah, the Chalcedonian Creed comes to mind. I don't know about y'all. Do, can we have favorite creeds? Is that allowed as Presbyterian ministers, aside, aside from the Westminster? I, I think so. It's kind of like, you know, you're not supposed to have favorite children. You say that, but everyone does, and we all know it. You're supposed Who, to love all the creeds. Who's your favorite child, Sean? Who's my favorite child? Yeah. Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, before, before Sean gets into real trouble, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, you might have a slightly different version, and that's okay, but I'm reading from this version that Christ is the Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, so that's without confusion, unchangeably, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being... Uh, by no means taken away by the union or being somehow removed or destroyed by the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and subsisting in one person or concurring in one person in subsistence. So when we talk about true humanity in the incarnation, and Derek did a good job walking us through Philippians chapter two last time to talk about how the incarnation did not result in any change to the unchangeable essence and divine nature of Christ. Uh, Derek actually doesn't like the language of adding a true body and reasonable soul. He, what's the word that you prefer, Derek? He assumed? Assumed, yeah. Well, that's just, Derek has this anti-math bent that he's on lately, which I get. Uh, I hate vision. I'm bad at math, um, but me being a man bad at math is still better than all the women. So um, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm really terrible at math. Um, no, I, I adding. So most people, even Orthodox theologians in modern era use the word addition. Okay. And, and what they mean by that is really assumption yes. most of the time. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm just being a, I, I was nitpicky last episode about the word assumption because I think it's, more faithful to classical terms and it's better theologically, but addition is like, it is what it is. Okay. We, we know what people mean by that. Well, the, the Chalcedonian creed also hates math because there is no division and no addition, uh, according to Derek, but there's this assumption of a, of a true body and a reasonable soul. And this is certainly refuting the ancient heresy of docetism, comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means appear or seem. And there would have been people, uh, particularly the Gnostics, who would have denied that Jesus had a true body because in their very dualistic, in their very Greek way of thinking, they thought that God taking on or assuming flesh, that that was beneath his dignity, that, that they just couldn't wrap their heads around that. And so they say Jesus only 
appeared to be a man. So he didn't have a true body, just an apparent body. But when you go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John, the gospel writer, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he stresses the trueness of Christ's body, that it was like yours and mine uh, with common infirmities, but um, untainted by original sin. So listen what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, okay, seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. When, when I first read that, I used to scratch my head and think, why is he just stressing the fact that he touched Jesus? Uh, why, why, why does he keep repeating himself here? Because there would have been people who denied the true humanity of Christ. So in the incarnation, Jesus' deity wasn't humanized, and nor was his humanity deified. He maintained a true divinity, a, a true humanity, without some kind of amalgam or confusion or mixture of the two natures, lest he become a tertium quid, a third kind, like a superman. Neither God, neither man, somewhere in between. That's not what we believe about Jesus. Thoughts, guys? You know, one of the things to kind of touch back on what Derek's speaking on, uh, the, the question of assumption or addition, uh, the reason why this is terribly important is it's it's the doctrinal distinction that Jesus in his humanity didn't um, add a previously existing humanity. Okay, so it, to, to put it in this way, um, his humanity did not become God. His God took on humanity in, in assumption uh, or addition, however you want. It's okay, I think, actually to say either way uh, that he's taking it up to himself. And the whole important thing of it is, is it's not like, Jesus was a man who lived a really good life. He was born only a man, and then eventually he became God. You see the distinction there? And, and the doctrine, if you want to go and like research it, the, um, the quality of Christ's humanity that it is created in a sense, um, 50% of the conception of the Father, 50% of the substance and uh, of the, the makeup of Mary in actuality, that that's how we have Christ. It's not, it's not that he's... You know, altogether 100% some strange, weird, new creation, uh, nor is he uh, a man that was then taken and uh, had the divinity of the eternal God added to him. Yeah, that's right. There wasn't some guy by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who was walking around, working in his father's carpenter shop, living life, and then suddenly was, you know— <laughs> overtaken by the spirit of Jesus, you know, in, inserting himself, and in, you know, it, that, that sounds more like that weird. Uh, what was the what was the villain's name in the first Harry Potter? Professor Quirrell, right? Where he's got Voldemort on the back of his head, and he's Quirrell on the front, and he's possessed by both. No, that's that's not that's not uh, what what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. Although some early church heresies and early uh, cultural heresies would be more akin to that than the orthodox view, which is being asserted here by the larger catechism. Jesus yeah. is truly the Son of God, and at the same time, the Son of Mary in the Incarnation. He is born of her and of her substance, right? So we are—Jesus isn't Jekyll and Hyde, if that makes sense. He's, he's not split personality. It's one person, but with these two natures. And 
by virtue of this union, there's not a diminishment of, of either nature. And if you try to find a fitting analogy of that, good luck. We have yet to find one. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the same rule that applies to eggs, H2O, and Transformers when trying to explain the Trinity, it's a hard no. Yeah. So likewise, the hypostatic union, it's one of those mysteries. I mean, it's clearly revealed in scripture, but we're never going to get our heads around it and no illustration can do it justice. That's right. And just to be clear, the thing that we're saying here, um, not only by making the distinction that Jesus doesn't take onto himself a pre-existent human person, okay, that the eternal son doesn't just add a man, a, a good rabbi who then is deified into mm-hmm. um, the fellowship of the God of heaven, mm-hmm. um, but rather in his conception, he is conceived in 50% of his chromosomes of the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, conceiving him naturally in his humanity that does not exist apart from hypostatic union. And the other 50% of his humanity is of Mary. To, to quote Derek Thomas, he has her eyes. You know, this is, this is the Christ that we're talking about. His humanity is not super in either way. It's completely and totally human as we are human. Uh, and he actually is like his mother because he's of his mother, just as he's like his heavenly father, even in his humanity, mm-hmm. because it is his father. Yeah, he looks like his mother, people will say. And don't you love how so succinctly the catechism question and answer just assumes all the background that's been happening over the centuries in the Council of Chalcedon, in the Council of Nicaea, in all these early church uh, debates, and you know how the how the church answered orthodoxly against all the heresies. Um, it just takes it, it assumes it to make a pun, right? It assumes it and just asserts it. He had, he he was a real human, not a fake human. He didn't just appear to be a human. Uh, none of this none of this spiritual world good, material world bad, gnostic nonsense. No, no. The Lord Jesus Christ had a fleshly, full, true, real human body just like you and just like me. He was the God man. And um you know, it's one of the early, and I, we can touch on it now or we can touch on it later but i know i've gotten this question before i suspect you guys have gotten it as well because this is one of the verses that uh, folks heretics cultists like the jehovah's witnesses love to rip out of context and use to make the assertion that he's not really divine and that's that verse from colossians um let me find it here in in my bible colossians chapter 1 verse 15 talking about the Lord Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, that means there was a time when he didn't exist, right? He was born, just like you and me. We didn't exist, and then suddenly we did exist because we were born into the world. So, right? Isn't that what Colossians 1, verse 15 is saying? And the answer, of course, is no. It is not saying that. He always was God. He always existed with the Father. He is the eternal Son of God, as the Catechism question is saying, and then in the fullness of time, he took on, he assumed that human uh, nature, he took that to himself. But it's not as if he became God later down the road. There was not ever a time when he was not. Sorry, Arius. Uh, but the firstborn of all creation. That's often a, a a gotcha verse that wants to get thrown in our faces by heretics, or well-meaning, sincere Christians who just say, I don't, I don't know that I understand that verse. So uh, I, I've i got some thoughts on this, but I think Matt has some some thoughts on this as well. Go ahead, brother. No, I was going to circle back, and I appreciate that Colossians 1 reference too, Sean, uh, because, you know, when 
when Nick was speaking uh, right before that, he was referencing uh, Dr. Derek Thomas, uh, who's been so helpful to all of us uh, throughout his many years of ministry. And and so when when Nick says, you know, you see Christ and he has his mother's eyes, right? Uh, we, we, we see the uh, the genetics of Mary, if you will, uh, in the person, in the in the manhood of of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Pastor Neil Stewart, who actually is now uh, Derek's successor uh, at First Press Columbia uh, here in South Carolina, he was speaking uh, to uh, images of Christ. And, and again, we'll touch on this with larger Catechism 109. Um, but he made a, a great reference uh, to not only uh, do the people uh, seeing Jesus in the flesh, see the characteristics of his mother, Mary. Uh, Neil Stewart says, at the same time, the angels look upon Jesus in his person, in his manhood, and the angels say, oh, he looks just like his father, mm-hmm. um, who is who is not Joseph, uh, but uh, God himself. And so, you know, both are true. Uh, in in the person of Jesus, uh, he he looks just like his father, uh, and at the same time, he looks just like his mother. Um, and and like Spin said already, that is unfathomable to us. Um, and even as we were, you know, talking about uh, in our last episode, not fully understanding the begottenness of the Son, that sometimes it's just best for us to sit back and be in awe of what the scriptures are teaching us uh, and to to allow that or enable uh, for that to enable us to to worship him more. How can he look just like the father in heaven and how can he look just like uh, his earthly mother, Mary, uh, in his person? Uh, not sure how that works, uh, but but it does in the person of Jesus. Um, and and so we, we have to make sure that we understand that both of those things are true, uh, fully divine and yet fully man, right? You know, I think John's gospel, chapter one, is so helpful, really. Um, you know, and, I, and I'd point a Christian, you know, really to all of uh, verse one through 14. But I want to highlight verse 1 and 14 very specifically because these are where John takes these two truths and without any sort of qualification reconciles them in the simple statement of truth. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. He just was. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. His eternal divinity with no beginning, his eternal subsistence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, forever and ever and ever. There's no explanation. John states it as fact. And then in verse 14, as you skip ahead a good bit over quite a lot of material, the same word we're reading uh, is this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. And again, there's no qualification. There's no apology. It's the stating of fact. This eternal being who was with God and was God became flesh. And those two things have to have your jaw on the floor. This is an 
an amazing and magnificent thing that the Bible just simply takes on the face of its truth. There's not any sort of uh, belaboring of the fact of this thing that, according to our flesh, is pretty unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But in the truth of the Word of God, it's simply reality. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And this catechism question, obviously, is the segue to the following ones. It doesn't get into the question why, but it's simply setting up the basis for the why question. What I mean is the the subsequent questions in the catechism talk about why was it necessary, or as the, the catechism says, requisite. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? And, and then it explains why it was necessary that our Savior be both God and man. So this catechism question leads to that, but it's not quite answering that yet. So forgive us if we, if we touch on that just a little bit and get ahead of ourselves. But this catechism question is setting up for the answering of the why by simply asserting the fact he is God and man. And here's what we mean by that. We'll get into why that was necessary. But for now, we're establishing, yes, he was fully God, fully man, not a fake man, not, not divine later on when it dropped in on him later. No, no, no. Fully God, fully man from the outset. And there you have it. And then it helps us explain you know, his conception by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, born of her. This is no fake or apparent or deceptive or, or, or artificial humanity. No, this is a real and full and genuine humanity, yet without sin is that closing clause there, that key closing clause. And we'll touch on that in just a few minutes. I read I read something pretty cool recently about why Jesus in the incarnation didn't just come because he could have, right? He, he could have come as a 30-year-old, begun his ministry right then and there, and wouldn't have to be born. I mean, this is, at one level, this is just a demonstration of Christ's humility and the extent to which he was willing to condescend for your salvation and mine. So it, it really is amazing when we see the humility of Christ. I think that's what it highlights and the extent of his obedience for our sakes. But also, why was it that Jesus was born to a mother just as we are all born, though for him, the absence of an earthly human father, was so that way we would believe his true humanity. Because if Jesus had just sort of appeared, that wouldn't be altogether different from the Christophanies of the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so there, there does seem to be, even in the virginal conception and her giving birth to Jesus, this is trying to remind us and persuade us that he is truly human. And I think it might have been Mark Jones in his book, Knowing Christ, which I found really helpful. We used it in our studies here at Westminster. The fact that Jesus tracked with our humanity from conception all the way to his death shows us what perfect sanctification looks like in every stage of life. That what is it to be perfectly human, a perfect baby, a perfect toddler, a perfect teenager, an adult? Jesus shows us. So he is the end of the law. He is the perfect reflection of the righteousness of God in his obedience, not just in one phase of his life, but in every phase. There there are so many ways you could take this. And 
the conception by the Holy Ghost, I think we've talked about this maybe in previous episodes and whether it's required for a Christian to believe these things. Jay Gresham Machen in his book on the virgin birth of Christ. Yeah, I'm almost certain we talked about this. But what's the reason? Some of our listeners might wonder, you know, if this is such a cardinal doctrine, there's got to be some reason why it's so necessary to believe in this. What would you all say? Kind of transitioning from true humanity to the importance of the Holy Spirit being the one who caused Christ to be conceived in the virgin's womb. What do y'all think? Because God's not his father in facsimile. He's his father in actuality. If the Bible made God his father um, only in the form of his divinity, he would only have a portion of fatherhood. And it would mean to all those who inherit the things that are in Christ that we would be facsimile children. We would be uh, children who haven't the natural uh, nurture and the natural relationship and the natural access of a true son or a true daughter in Jesus Christ. His humanity would be alien to God as his father, at least in essence. And I I, I would say that if, if you've got a Christ who, who only, again, if Joseph is his natural human father, then Jesus is a man with two daddies. And that just won't do, because the whole doctrine of Christ hinges on his one-on-one personal devotion and fellowship and communion with the Father. And, and if you take that down, if you if you minimize that, or you naturalize it into uh, some sort of um, uh, out-of-wedlock, <clears throat> pregnant Mary, according to natural terms, that, then you make Jesus, you make him a bastard, in essence. Mm-hmm. And it just can't be. It's not what the Bible teaches, and it, and it would make it would make almost no sense of Christ's fellowship with the Father, and there would be little to no improvement of the natural creature's relationship with God as Father. It would just be God as Creator, but in Christ we have Him as Father because He is Jesus's His eternal Father in His divinity, His natural Father in the magnificent miracle of His virginal conception. Yeah. Amen to all that. I, I appreciate that angle very much. Uh, Spin, to answer your question, the, the angle that I thought of was to encourage listeners to go back to uh, one of our previous episodes, not or not even necessarily us because we're so wonderful, but just go back to an earlier catechism question, number 22, when we're thinking about sin and sin nature and how sin gets passed down and how sin natures get inherited. Uh, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? Larger Catechism 22. The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. And so as we talked about in that earlier episode, the ordinary way in which human babies are created, the ordinary manner of human procreation is how children inherit the sin nature from their father and from the Father's Father, and the Father's Father, and ultimately the Father of all humanity, namely Adam. Well, Jesus had an extraordinary generation, because that sin nature did not come from his Father's seed, because God is his Father, as Nick so wonderfully articulated for us just a few moments ago. (laughs) God is holy. (laughs) God is sinless. There is no sin in God, so there's no sin nature for that ordinary generation to communicate unto the embryo, the fetus, the child in Mary's womb, Jesus. 
Uh, and so that's part of the reason <laughs> that we talk about and we repudiate these these notions of the fallen humanity of Christ. No, 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 no. No fallen humanity of Christ. The sinless Christ. Sorry, T.F. Torrance at all. Um, we will have none of that here, and the Catechism will have none of that either. So because God is his Father, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, that ordinary generation sin nature that I have, that you have, the Lord Jesus does not have, which is why he is uh, sinless uh, from 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 the get-go in his earthly ministry. And so, going back to question 22, like you did, and yet without sin, that's why it's so important. Because if Jesus was born after the same manner that you and I are, with an earthly father and earthly mother, we would have inherited the guilt of our first father, Adam. And so Jesus is coming in not even just as a blank slate, but he's coming in positively righteous. He is perfectly holy in his humanity, and he at no point stumbles or falls because that's what God requires. If Jesus were born the same way that we were, and even if he had lived his life in obedience to all of God's commands and thought, word, and deed, the problem is is that he still has that inherited original guilt. Mm -hmm. And so... Because he is supernaturally conceived, that is bypassed. He doesn't inherit original guilt or corruption, and he's not going to commit the actual transgressions which proceed from that original and corrupted nature. And so he can be our second Adam and our Savior. Now, thinking of Mary, the blessed virgin, uh, the Theotokos, okay? I know, Derek... I'm trying to get Derek in the game here. So, Derek, are you for or against the Theotokos in the creed? Theotokos, explain to our listeners what that means and why you are just vociferously in favor of it. Who is Theo, and what are these glorious tacos that he has? <laughs> oh! Oh! But a Dutch. Oh, that's not what you mean. My bad. Go ahead, Derek. So, I am in favor of... Um, of that being in the creed i'm in favor of um i'm also in favor of good tacos um but uh so it literally means god bearer um speaking especially of uh, obviously of mary being the god bearer i'm in favor of it because we believe that he is one person with two natures that the child that mary had in the womb was really god even in even in the womb, even at his conception, he was um, one person uh, in two natures. And so, um, so yes, she really did give birth to God in a sense, right? I mean, she gave birth to the person of the son clothed in human flesh. And I think that the best way to think about this is, when, you know, you think about like, um, the communico uh, idiomatum, you know, I, I'm a little tired, but, um, uh, if you look at how scripture says, um, that God purchased the church, um, by his blood, right? He, he purchased the church by his, well, God doesn't have blood, does he? Um, no, but the human nature has blood and it's one person, um, and uh, so sometimes when we speak of Christ, 
something can be done that is really uh, speaking of one nature, but it can be attributed to the person or the other nature, right? So God doesn't have blood, but yet they, or they crucified the Lord of glory. Okay. Jesus's divine nature did not die, but the person, right? in the human nature died. So um, it's similar. And um, to that, in my, at least in my opinion, that Mary gave birth uh, uh, she was the God bearer. She really did give birth to the one who would be um, clothed in human nature. So she's the queen of heaven. Is that what I'm hearing you say? You know, there's a, um, it makes me think of there's a uh, Roman Catholic church in Orlando. I think it's Orlando. And it says uh, it's called Mary queen of the universe. So. Well, she got a promotion. I, I was not aware of this. She got she got promoted, man. Um, so, Hail Mary, full of grace, right? Notre Dame's in second place. Thank you for that. Dave. Notre Dame's in second place. <laughs> no, don't, yeah. So, not not thank you for that, but thank you for your previous elucidations. Truly, um, that's right. People people get all bent out of shape. Well, God doesn't have blood. Yes, but Jesus had blood because he was a real human, a real man. And like you alluded to, and I just wanted to read it ever so briefly here, uh, the way our confession puts it, uh, Westminster Confession, Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, Section 7, it, it describes exactly what Derek already alluded to, that it's proper to speak uh, when you speak of the, are we speaking of the divine nature of Christ? Are we speaking of the human nature of Christ? Well, sometimes you just say he or him. It says this in Section 7, Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So, to say Jesus has blood, for instance, yes, the divinity God does not have blood, but his human nature has blood. So, therefore, he, Jesus, purchased the church by his own precious blood. We can say that orthodoxly, accurately, and confidently. Well, and I think this is important, too, because this helps us to understand that Mary remained sinless and a virgin. So, Please do not <laughs> believe what he just said, okay? So this is genuinely because, um, you know, in all seriousness, there is a trend of late. I think it's a lot of young people who are swinging the pendulum hard from sort of the happy, clappy uh, smoke machine churches to the bells and smells of Roman Catholicism. And I even have, this is amazing. I have a 16-year-old in my church who converted to Rome and is now coming, and he's taking his membership vows this coming Sunday. It's amazing. And Praise, praise the Lord, by the way. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Yeah, and the Marianity was, you know, kind of part of, like eh, this is skeeping me out a little bit. Mary was a great gal. She when when the Bible says that she was full of grace, that is not saying that she was so full of grace that she she was sinlessly perfect. Uh, it's saying that like Noah, a righteous man in his de- generation, relatively speaking, right as a sinner looking to the Messiah as Savior, this is a righteous person, and, and so God, of course, was was pleased to use her. Yes, what a remarkably uh, but, and incredibly godly woman. How can you not have that impression of her when you read the Magnificat, the Song of Mary in Scripture? What a godly woman. A very godly woman. So we don't want to denigrate 
uh, the Virgin Mary any more than we would denigrate Abraham or the apostles or those other persons through whom God worked a mighty work. But we do want to be careful not to ascribe to her divine attributes, titles, or privileges, and certainly not to pray in her name. I love in the Heidelberg Catechism, it talks about, you know, to whom should we pray? We do not pray to saints. We do not pray to Mary because she's not a co-mediatrix with Jesus. Now, if she had divine attributes like Jesus has, as, as Rome teaches, then you could understand why people go to that place. But she also, and this is a distinction that sometimes we conflate them, but I think it's helpful to say here that the immaculate conception and the virginal conception are not the same thing. The immaculate conception is that Mary herself was conceived and born sinlessly perfect, and that she continued sinlessly perfect, and so was the fitting vessel through whom the God-man came. We deny that, because even in Mary's Magnificat, she rejoices in God, her Savior. Yes. She's a sinner needing to be saved by grace, just like you and me. So... While we don't want to badmouth Mary, uh, she's a good woman. We do not want to elevate her to the status wherein she's a second Christ, because Christ and Christ alone is the way to salvation. You know, brothers, we, we've we've heard this before by other men uh, that our hymnody can absolutely instruct our doctrine. Okay, so. Let me just share a few lines of maybe the most popular Christmas hymn to come out in the past at least 20 years. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. I mean, even this hymn knows that. Uh, you go on and you get uh, Derek smiling. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Right, Derek? He's smiling because that's exactly what he was singing in the shower this morning with shampoo in his hair and getting ready for the podcast. He was excited. No, no, I was singing Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> you didn't need I... to have your. You didn't need to have the camera on for the call. Like you can, you can turn the camera off. Oh, like, do, do you know nothing about Zoom etiquette after COVID? Oh, my bad. My bad. Um, I just want to jump in and say Mary knew. She did, because an angel told her so. She absolutely did. Anyway. No, that's a that's a great point, Nick. Uh, even in that, that contemporary hymn for which the poetry of uh, some folks don't care for. But yeah, they get it, right? The child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Why? Because she was a sinner who needed a savior. They get it. That's right. You know, one of the things that I want to touch on, I, I kind of thought Spin might be going this direction when he he mentioned this young guy who has come out of uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, there is oftentimes criticism thrown at the Reformed that we have, um, you know, we have 17th century doctrine. All of our uh, doctrinal propositions or our method uh, begins in the early modern era. We're we're Enlightenment uh, Christians. Sometimes we're called, and and so on and so forth. But the reality of this is, is if you actually know Westminster Doctrine, uh, we are a profoundly creedal uh, and council-driven, uh, ecumenical council-driven uh, doctrinal body of Christians. Uh, these are things that um, have 
have always been affirmed by Orthodox Christians. These are things that you would find folk um, in very different communions than us to simply affirm as the very essence of Christianity. Um, you know, and, and, and I have experienced uh, in, in a number of churches that I've served uh, an opposite thing. Okay, I, I've experienced uh, folks coming into the Reformed Church. They appreciate the, the doctrinal substance of the church. Uh, they appreciate the, the, uh, the formal or ordered, let me say it that way, liturgy of, of worship. And, and they stay with us for a while. And then all of a sudden, um, progressively, they, uh, they want more. They want more uh, formality. They want formalism. They like formal worship to the point where they get into um, performative acts of worship uh, that you would see in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or you might see in the Roman Catholic Communion or, uh, or in Anglicanism. And, and, it, and it's, a, it's going farther afield. It's taking uh, their, their own Christian experience to a place of, of deed uh, over and against faith. Or sometimes they would say deed and faith, where we would say faith and faith directed by the scriptures. But one of the, the regular complaints is you guys don't have a rooted doctrine. You're you're not a historical church. You're you're this new thing. And you could just simply say, friends, you actually don't know what we believe. Um, you're actually out of touch even with what you claim to be leaning toward uh, the ecumenical councils, the church fathers. Um, our doctrinal standards were a recovery of these truths, truths that were forgotten even in those communions that you claim are more faithful to the old paths. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad you made that point, Nick, of the historical rootedness uh, of the Reformed Church, that it's not <laughs> it's not a, a new kid on the block, as our opponents would allege, but it really is rooted in the Church Fathers, of course, in Holy Scripture of the ancient Church Councils and so forth. Um, we're not pressed for time, but I want to make sure we get this in as part of this discussion, um, since it's in that last clause uh, of the question, uh, and not to tear off old scabs by any means, but this is a live question, not just in our denomination, but in other evangelical and reformed denominations in the day in our day and age, uh, given given the proclivities of culture, given the discussions that are out there, and so, you know, I, I was sort of teasing earlier when I was mentioning T.F. Torrance and, you know, Karl Barth, I mean, these, these doctrines of the fallen humanity of Christ. But it's important that we um, maybe touch on this a bit for our listeners who aren't as clued into these uh, theological discussions and conversations. Did Christ have a fallen human nature in any way? And did Christ have any sort of, was he, was he prone to internal temptations due to internal corruption? Yes or no? No, correct. Yeah, that's Jesus. Jesus was impeccable, and there's a great book by William Swan Plummer uh, on impeccability. I believe Log College Press published it not too long ago. It's really good. And the question that will often follow on the heels of this, Sean, is: Well, how is Jesus really tempted if he couldn't succumb to temptation? If he didn't have internal evil desires like I do, how can he sympathize with me in my weakness like a faithful high priest, like Hebrews 4 says? And I think we need to remember that Jesus was tempted externally in more ways than you ever have been. He he had Satan himself trying to tempt him to turn these stones into bread, 
and to bow the knee that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world and to throw himself from the top of the temple so that the angels might rescue him. Jesus went through awful temptation. The Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat, sweating drops of blood. We've never been tempted anywhere close to that. And that Jesus couldn't fail doesn't take away from the beauty or from just the power of his obedience. I, I think this illustration or this analogy kind of helped me in seminary when said, somebody asked, is it a true test? Is it a true temptation if Jesus can't sin? That's something akin to saying, okay, we've got two bridges. One is made of toothpicks and the other way one is made of pure steel. You drive a tank over the first bridge, and of course, the toothpicks fall because they don't have the structural integrity to withstand a tank that heavy. But that same tank is driven over that bridge with steel beams, and it supports its weight. Now, did the tank, or was it not a real test on the strength of the steel bridge because it didn't fall or had no potential of succumbing or falling to the weight of the tank? No. The tank was as real going across that second bridge as it was the first. So these are real temptations that Jesus is dealing with. But the fact that he's impeccable doesn't take away from our reasons to worship him. It should enhance them. Because these temptations were to Jesus like rubber bands to a tank. They didn't stand a chance. I think that was Rick Phillips years ago at the Greenville Seminary Conference. He used the uh, like rubber bands at a tank analogy. And that should give us lots of comfort, remembering that when we go to Jesus, there's not even a chance that he could have or is now tempted with evil like we are and will lead us astray. He's victorious. And so we're more than conquerors through him who loved us and kept God's law in thought, word, and deed the whole of his ministry. So I don't agree with any of that. I'm just kidding. Um, so, uh, no, I think, I think what is true here is that we want to uphold the impeccability of Christ. Um, going back to what spinning Weber said that, you know, he, he was tempted. Um, and yet without sin, he overcame and, um, overcame in our place. And uh, thank God for that. You know, in answer to Sean's original question, just for the benefit of our readers, when the question of a fallen nature uh, regarding Christ is, is put before us, I think the first thing a Christian has to simply say in response is, the Bible just doesn't teach Jesus like that. Um, the Bible Amen. the Bible is, is, is very clear uh, about the perfect nature of Jesus. We don't ever even see any sort of internal struggle um, within Christ where where he um, perceives in, uh, disobedience. Even whenever he asks the Father to allow the cup to pass, there's not with a threat of, or I will. Uh, no, he, he's pleading with the Father to do as he pleases. Uh, Yet it be thy will and not my own. That's, that's the comment of Christ. And, and so the Bible is just profoundly unified in, in the gospel accounts of Jesus uh, and and in the epistolary writings on, on who Jesus, uh, Jesus is on this question. So that, that's one thing I'd say. So the Christian needs to simply say, no, theologian, you may be theologizing, but you're not biblical. 
And the Bible tells us more clearly on the question of the perfection of Jesus Christ and, and his sin, or lack thereof a, of a capacity to sin. That's one aspect. But another one I would say to the average Christian is this. If Jesus has a fallen nature, then there is culpability and guilt that comes along with that. Uh, we live in a day and an age where that question is, is seemingly open and people are quite confused about it. Nobody has a question of do people have a sin nature, but the whole question is if you have a sin nature and you never do you know, a sin of, of commission or whatever, you never act out your sin, do you still go to hell? And the Bible's answer is simply yes. Uh, you have a fallen body, your body's going to die, um, and you've inherited the guilt of Adam. Um, and so we would say at least Jesus um, would have had a, a native sin nature where the cross would have been his own. The first Adam would have been his representative. Okay, that, that deconstructs your doctrine of the cross. And we would say that Jesus would have had to have hung for his own guilt. He would have been righteously punished on his own account, not simply the account of those who he would redeem. And so he'd be a, a, a guilty um, criminal in himself on the cross instead of the substitute. And so I just want to say to Christians, brothers, sisters in Christ, you need to push back really hard against this. Um, because if you have Jesus dying because he's a sinner and not that he was made sin, uh, he who knew no sin was made sin, um, then you just don't have redemption. You don't have a savior. You just you have another guy that was guilty and put to death on on, on the punishment that he actually deserved. Uh, there again, I, want, I just want to say Old Testament, New Testament, the Bible just doesn't accord with the idea of the fallen nature of Christ. It's yeah. just not there. That's right. Second Corinthians 5.21, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, that's absolutely, um, absolutely true. I, I, amen to, amen. That'll preach. That'll preach. <laughs> And I think that, I mean, there's there's certain sins of this age and temptations to those sins that are driving that. But I also think there's a lot of what's driving this misunderstanding, whether it's deliberate or not, is the desire to have a sympathetic high priest, one who is tempted in every respect as we are. And people want to emphasize that Jesus can relate to us. Our great high priest can relate to us. He's experienced what we've experienced. Yes and amen, because Scripture says that. But we cannot push beyond the bounds of Scripture and then say, Jesus had these internal temptations due to an internal corruption and a darkness of the heart like we had. No, 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 he didn't. He had those, he had real and genuine external temptations, but he didn't have a corruption of the heart natively like we do that would lead to those internal corruptions and internal temptations. There is a difference there, and that's important. Um, and he is still, nevertheless, a sympathetic high priest, more sympathetic than you could possibly imagine. But in our desire to convey and portray a savior who is a sympathetic high priest who who has been in our shoes, so to speak. We don't want to uh, commit unorthodox uh, Christology in, in doing so, articulate unorthodox Christology. Can I just say real quick, this is why one of the reasons, one of the reasons that many who are associated with Revoice really brought, I mean, this brought some trouble on this point. Yes. Because they wanted to have a Jesus who is sympathetic to their sexual, their mis- ordered sexual desires, right? Mm -hmm. Or their sexual sin. Mm -hmm. But the difference is sexual sin um, for us, right? Yes, there's external temptation, but most of our sexual sin is inward temptation coming from the rottenness of our own hearts and, yep. and things like that. Jesus did not have that. He did not have that as it's already been said 
um, you know, he didn't have that inward struggle, that inward desire, uh, you know, that was disordered. So, um, you know, this is, uh, it's definitely important for our listeners, especially in current contemporary conversations. You know, and, and I think this arises, I mean, we, we have our own moment. We can't really say how people were 150 years ago, whatever, at least maybe we could, maybe we can, I don't know. But on this question, uh, you hear it all the time. If you've not, you know, walked a mile in my moccasins, you can't possibly know my pain. And, it, and it's this lie uh, mm-hmm. that people lack the capacity for real empathy if they've not suffered the exact thing that you have or are suffering presently. That's just not true. We've got Jesus with the sisters of Lazarus. And what is he doing? He's weeping. He's weeping. And did he lose a brother? No, he didn't lose a brother, at least according to the flesh. No, he did not lose his natural brother. Uh, But he's nonetheless there with a heart that extends to the suffering uh, of these sisters. And so I want to simply say to folks that say, I don't know if Jesus never struggled with same-sex attraction. Oh, if Jesus never struggled with cancer, if Jesus never struggled, uh, whatever million different um, personalized subjective sufferings that he Mm. can't, he can't possibly come near to me. I want to say Jesus in the Bible already does. He disproves that. And he does it in a wonderful way because you know what? He doesn't only come as a commiserator. He comes as a helper. He comes with one who has power. He's not standing there powerless, simply saying, I'm sorry, and I just want to hug you and just want to cry on you. He says, you cry on me, and you know what? I'm going to fix it because I have power, and I'm going to help. Amen. And that nicely piggybacks off of what Spin was saying earlier, That, and, and I wanted to close us with that thought of, praise the Lord that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. <laughs> That's we have the greater and better Adam. We have the second Adam. You know, Adam was created in this state of innocency in the garden, and he was faced with real and genuine external temptations. And he was originally created innocent of that internal creation, free from that in original state of innocency. And he succumbed to temptation and he failed and he succumbed to sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ came along free from that internal corruption, without sin, as the Catechism says. And he was victorious over and against real, genuine, bona fide external temptations to sin. He overcame, he succeeded, he was victorious, where our first father, Adam, failed, and we praise him for it. Fellows, this has been a great conversation. We've reached about an hour, so I guess we will wind it down here, and we hope that this has been edifying and useful for our listeners as well, as we're getting our heads around Orthodox Christology something that may sound arcane and obscure, but it really is a needed discussion and needed tidying up within the Christian church. It is one of the great needs of our day to get our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, correct. So this has been a discussion on question number 37, and it sets us up so well and so nicely for subsequent questions about why it was necessary that our mediator be God and man in one person, and we'll pick up with that in the weeks to come. Before we close, we have another book giveaway for you all. This week we're, we're going to be giving away another copy of these beautiful new gift editions of the Westminster Larger Catechism that have been published by our friends at Crown and Covenant Publications, which is the official publishing arm of the RPCNA denomination, Reformed Presbyterian Church 
of North America. Uh, they gave us several of these copies to give away to our listeners, and so we're glad to do that. Lovely additions that you might uh, keep yourself, or you might even give away to a, an upcoming high school grad or college grad or something like that. Uh, beautifully bound, beautifully typeset with the proof texts uh, at the bottom of the page footnoted there as well. So just a lovely copy of the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, that you'll be sure to enjoy. So as this episode goes out, if you'd be so kind as to share this on Facebook or retweet this on Twitter, help us get the word out about this podcast and about this uh, particular episode, your name will be entered in a drawing to win, and we'll let you know who the providential winner is. And so with that, friends, it's been great to have you listening along, and we'll look forward to having you join us next time here on Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.